1: Hi everyone, and thank you for tuning in to an incredibly special milestone 150th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and when I started this podcast 21 months ago, I really couldn't have dreamed of ever having a more special guest than the one we have today. She's possibly the most famous person of color alive today, probably the most famous woman alive today, and certainly the most famous interviewer and life coach of the television age not to mention a great humanitarian and philanthropist who is an inspiration to people the world over and to me personally, Oprah Winfrey. Making this all the more special, this is Oprah's first ever podcast interview. The 63-year-old was born in rural Mississippi and experienced a tumultuous childhood that drove her to the brink of suicide. But through smarts, perseverance, an unwavering faith in God and a little bit of luck, she not only survived but thrived, going off to Tennessee State University and realizing her ambition of landing a career in news. However, over the course of stints on local shows in Nashville, Baltimore, and Chicago, she realized that her strengths lay not in sitting at a desk and reading off a teleprompter, but in interacting with people and speaking from the heart. In the mid-80s, her career exploded. Through another remarkable series of events, she made her big-screen debut in Steven Spielberg's 1985 adaptation of Alice Walker's novel The Color Purple, garnering a Best Supporting Actress Oscar nomination in early 1986, just months before The Oprah Winfrey Show went into syndication, launching an unparalleled 25-year run that introduced her to the world as someone with incredible empathy and generosity who strived every day to help others live their best life and firmly established her as the queen of daytime television. Oprah's empire soon expanded to include Oprah's Book Club, Oprah's Angel Network, O Magazine, The Oxygen Network, and eventually, in 2010, The Oprah Winfrey Network, or OWN, which became her primary focus after The Oprah Winfrey Show aired its last episode in 2011. The only network owned by a black woman, it is based out of Los Angeles, employs hundreds of people, and overcame a slow start to become a major success story. Among the strongest of the original content that it produces is the drama series Queen Sugar, a collaboration between Winfrey and protégé Ava DuVernay, the first season of which aired last fall and is Emmy-eligible this year, and the second season of which premieres June 20th. The other major development in Winfrey's life post-The Oprah Winfrey Show is her own return to acting. She appeared in front of a camera as someone other than herself only once during the show's run, in the 1998 Jonathan Demme film Beloved, But since the show went off the air, she has played key supporting parts in Lee Daniels' 2013 film The Butler and DuVernay's 2014 film Selma. On April 22nd, audiences saw her return to a leading role for the first time in 19 years in George C. Wolfe's HBO TV movie The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, in which she plays Deborah Lacks, the manic daughter of a woman whose cancer cells were taken and widely used without her or her family's consent. In the film, Winfrey is almost unrecognizable and does some of her finest acting yet, and it might well bring her an Emmy nomination for Best Actress in a Limited Series. That would go nicely with her many other accolades, which includes 16 Daytime Emmys, plus the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences Lifetime Achievement and Special Recognition Awards, one Primetime Emmy, plus the TV Academy's Bob Hope Humanitarian Award, the aforementioned Oscar nomination, plus the Film Academy's Gene Herschelt Humanitarian Award, a Tony Award, and, bestowed in 2013 by President Barack Obama, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Over the course of our conversation at the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills, Winfrey and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, the nature of the horrors that she faced as a young person and how she was able to survive them, how she discovered her strengths on TV and which of them specifically made The Oprah Winfrey Show work so well, why she became reluctant to return to acting after becoming famous for being herself, and what it has been like facing those fears and playing other people anyway, why she gravitates toward projects about the African-American experience, like Queen Sugar and The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, and what it was like bringing them to life, and a bunch of fun stuff as well, like which TV show she watches, when she last met someone who didn't already know who she was, whether or not she would take on and could defeat Donald Trump in 2020, what's still on her bucket list, and what she thinks she would be up to right now, if certain things hadn't broken her way over the years and she had never become a household name at all. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation.
2: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW avoid, by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: Oprah, thank you so much for doing this. It's an honor to have you on the podcast. And I don't think you've done many podcasts before, if any. Have, have I done any? I don't think so. Well, thank you for letting us be your first. Oh, thank you. We always begin just with a very basic one. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living?
0: Oh, boy. I was born and raised in a couple of places. I was born in one place, obviously, Kosciuszko, Mississippi. Raised there until I was six. Moved to Milwaukee, lived there, raised there for a few years, and then moved to Nashville. And so I consider myself raised between Nashville, Milwaukee, and Mississippi. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: One other little biographical thing. There aren't many other people prior to you who were named
0: Oprah. And in fact, you were not named Oprah, right? Yes, it's Orpa. Yes. After Ruth, first chapter, 14th verse. I think Orpa was Ruth's sister in law. Whither thou goest, I will go. And Orpa said, sorry, headed back. <laughs> and yeah, named by my Aunt Ida, my great Aunt Ida. She was my mother's aunt, so my great Aunt Ida who was a church-going, Bible-toting, very religious woman and thought that that name would give me a sense of stability and something to move forward with in the world. And she was kind of right about that. Well, let's talk about, because
1: stability would not be the first word that describes those early years, certainly pre it looks like fourteen or fifteen yeah, for you. You've spoken pretty unstable. about it. yeah, yeah. I mean, can I ask you? I you've you you spoken ask me about anything? Uh, well, thank you. This I mean, is I, great. We have an hour. I, I, I love it. And and you know, reading about your life, it's it. I think it just makes it all the more amazing what what you've accomplished when people realize what those first few years were you know entailed. There's a reason that you were moving around and and things were chaotic a bit. So and also it informs a lot of what's happened since, including. I think Henrietta Lacks and and Deborah Lacks, this character who shared some similar experiences. So I just wonder, to
0: whatever extent you're comfortable, I mean, what what were those early years like? Well, that's so nice of you to say, whatever extent I was comfortable. Because I think people who've watched the Oprah show over the years have heard me say just about everything, I don't have very many secrets. If I have them, I haven't discovered them yet. (laughs) And one of the reasons for that is that I learned early on in the process of interviewing other people that what really connects you to another human being is you're willing to open up and be vulnerable, as Brene Brown has written about in Daring Greatly, that vulnerability is really your greatest power. Mm -hmm. And before people researched it and studied it, I had come to know that naturally, that vulnerability is your greatest power. And I would say that that's been my greatest gift in connecting to the audience is just being open and willing to continually be myself. Those early years were challenging years because I was living in an apartheid state. Really, Mississippi in 1954, from 1954 to 1961, when I lived there, was not much different than South Africa, apartheid South Africa. Mm -hmm. There were rules and regulations for men and black people being on the street in town. I remember people pulling to the side of the sidewalk, letting white people walk by. I never in my life went inside a white store, but saw from the windows white people inside the store. And the most fortunate thing for me is that by the time I turned six, and and was in 19, so that would have been 1962, by the time I turned six, it was time for me to... Moved to Milwaukee because my grandmother became ill. So I was raised traditionally in a southern poor environment. I used to think that we had a farm. I went back, it wasn't a farm. It was just, it was it was two acres. Right. So, <laughs> so when you go back, things are so yeah. much smaller. So I was raised in such a rural environment that not too long ago, I was speaking to some third graders up in the Bronx, and they literally asked me, Did you know Abraham Lincoln when I finished (laughs) telling them my story? Because I was raised in a little shotgun house. No running water, no electricity. There was an outhouse outside. We had what you call a slop jar under the bed where people would use it to go to the bathroom at night. It was my job as a little kid, unfortunately, to take out the slop jar and have to empty the slop jar (laughs) in the morning. There I remember sleeping in this big four-poster bed with my grandmother in the center of the room which was our living room, her bedroom, also, you know, parlor. There was a fireplace in the room, two chairs in the room, my little rocking chair and her bed. So we cooked by the by the parlor fire yeah. sometimes. I remember people going out hunting and bringing dead rabbits and squirrels laying them in front of the hearth. And getting up in the morning, going to get the eggs from the chickens and the cows, and the going to the well to get water. So it does sound a little like Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> but you were happy. I was as happy as I knew how to be. Right. I was very much content being myself, mm-hmm. being with myself, because there weren't a lot of kids around. Uh, they were down the road a piece. And rarely did I have visitors or you know, cousins or relatives who would come by. So it was basically my grandmother, myself, out there isolated yeah. in this little urban area.
1: So when she, when she was no longer area. well, I guess, first of all, why initially were you with her, and then why did you go? Oh, because
0: my mother was a part of the Great Migration North. Okay. You ever read any of those stories yeah. about the Great Migration? My mother was one of those single, never married, young women, who had graduated high school, had gotten pregnant with me, had sex one time with my father on the way home from school. He talks about she was wearing a poodle skirt and he wanted to see what was up under there. <laughs> and dropping driving her by some wooded area under a tree, coming home and having all the leaves still on the back of her skirt so my grandmother was aware that something right. had gone on. <laughs> And uh, my mother became pregnant from that one time. They never saw each other really again. And he went off to the army. And months later, she sent him a letter saying, you have a daughter. Wow. And to his credit, he said, well, I did have sex with her that one time. Perhaps she is my daughter. Right. And took responsibility.
1: Responsibility, though, in... in in some senses, but I guess initially you're living. So after okay, age so
0: six, okay, Scott, let me get. So yeah, yeah. I was six. Yeah. Then I moved to Milwaukee right. until I. So I I know it by grades. Yeah. So six, never been to school. Right. Started kindergarten, got myself removed from kindergarten the same day right. because I walked in there knowing how to read. My grandmother had already taught me how to read. Wow. So I walked in there going, I don't know what these kids are doing, <laughs> but I am in the wrong place. Right, right. And I sent Miss New a letter saying, "Miss New, I do not belong here. I know a lot of big words. So I wrote right. every word I knew, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all the Bible stories I knew, and Elephant and Hippopotamus, put all that on a piece of paper, got sent to the principal's office and moved up to the first grade the same day. So I started... First grade, next day, skip second grade. Then that summer was sent to live with my father for a summer uh-huh. and had third and fourth grade in Nashville, which really was the life-changing force for me. I would say my grandmother's beginning, teaching me how to read, me being inspired by Bible stories, yeah. which is the only book we really had. And being inspired by those Bible stories let me know that there was another world out there by the time I was in the third and fourth grade, I was a big, big, big reader. It was it was my number one hobby and pastime mm-hmm. because when I got sent to live with my father and stepmother, my stepmother Zelma, who I've never really given the credit that she deserved for changing the the, the, the trajectory of my life, really. Because the summer I arrived there, I was a scared little eight-year-old kid. My mother had said, Whatever you do, don't you call her mother. I don't want you call So I'm in the house not knowing what can I call her. I don't know right. what to call her. So I ended up calling her Peach because she met me in a peach robe. <laughs> and, you know, you're a little kid. You yeah. don't want to make your mother mad. You're trying to get along with everybody. And she had these rules where every week I had to go to the library and draw out library books. That was our big pastime. And for the entire summer of my, as before, just before I was going into the third grade, we went every week, got books from the library, and I had to read them and write book reports in the house and learn new vocabulary words wow. every week. So that's what started this whole course of, you know, loving learning and appreciating what education has to offer.
1: So you mentioned your mother, you start with your grandmother, and I think, ended up with your father on a more full
0: time basis, but had you you lived with your mother in between? hmm I went back to live with my mother after the fourth grade. So I had fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade back in Milwaukee.
1: And those were some of the really, harder years. Really,
0: really harder years. Because what I didn't tell everybody was that the summer of my ninth year I had been raped by a cousin. So That's when
1: you were living with your mother. mother.
0: hmm And that just started me on a spiral a spiral downward, I would say, because now I rec- realize that I didn't even have the language. I wasn't going to tell, never occurred to me that I would tell because the cousin said, don't tell. And I wouldn't have told because I thought I would have somehow would have been blamed for it. But, you know, in telling my story, what I recognize is that there is no part of anyone's story that is ever wasted because my experience being raped the very experience of it, of being seduced by the cousin and later seduced by boyfriends of my mother or boyfriends of my, you know, grown cousins, older men, uncles. I mean, I now understood how it happens. And so that's why being an activist, a person who is interested in hearing the stories and outing molesters has been such a passion for me. Because not just because it happened to me, but I understand the seduction of it. I understand how you're nine or 10 or five or seven and you don't even have the language to describe what it is. Because if you've never seen a man's genital parts ever in your life, the first time you see it, you don't know what that is or what to call it or what's going on or what's happening here. But you know that it's a secret, and it's the secret that drives people to really be depressed, to, you know, some people— have severe problems afterwards because it's the level of shame and secrecy that does it. And in your case you couldn't even
1: really talk to your mother about it because I couldn't talk to anybody about it. Family members and other I
0: knew that to share it with anybody would somehow put the blame back on me and it would become a big thing and and so I think children, you know, this is what I now know. Molesters who are good at it and do it often. And usually, if you're a child who's being molested, you are not the first one. Nobody's trying it out on you for the first time. What I learned over the years is that there are certain kinds of kids that molesters look for. They look for the kid who's alone. Mm -hmm. They look for the kid whose parents are working. They look for the kid who is looking for love or seeking attention or seems to be vulnerable or... They don't look for the big mouth kid. Mm-hmm. They they so, stray yeah. away from the big mouth kid. And you think at that time in your life, you might have given off the, not in any
1: way, of
0: yeah, f- course I think, not to fall. I think that I was a little, I th- you know, I look at, I was a sweet little girl who was open to receive love in any way that I could. Mm-hmm. I was hungry for people to, to see me and to be valued and to be paid attention to. Mm-hmm. And I remember one of my molesters who started molesting me when I was 10, up until I was 14, and would do it in broad daylight in front of you know my mother, his girlfriend, who was my mother's first cousin. He would tell them all the time, I want to marry her. When I was 10. He would say in front of them, you know, she's Oprah's the smartest one. I mean, well, Oprah's smarter than all of y'all. If I could marry anybody, it would be Oprah. And here's this guy; he's thirty something years old, and nobody got that. And he always wanted me riding in the car with him, going to the store with him, spending time alone with me. So all the signs were obviously there for everybody. Did some of the stuff in front of your mother? Well, oh, yeah, right in front of people. As it is happening, I think with. Lots of people. It's right before your eyes. It's so blatant. So what
1: was it that extricated you from the situation at 14 or whatever, where you end up with your father? How did, was I it... hit rock bottom, yeah. actually.
0: I hit rock bottom. I became pregnant. By the uncle or, mm-hmm. yeah. And I came, became pregnant and hid the pregnancy. I'd intended to kill myself, actually. I planned on killing, I thought there's no way out other than killing myself. And I was just planning on how to do it. You know, if I'd had the Internet now, I might not be alive because now Mm -hmm. you can just Google how to do it. So so many crazy stories, Scott, that I couldn't even tell you in an hour. I mean, one one day, one day, maybe I'll write a book about it. But here's the craziest story. So I would create these little antics for myself. So I decided I wanted to have a friend and I didn't have any friends. So I was going to get a dog. So I saved all my lunch money up to get a dog. My mother had said I couldn't have a dog. So this is my mother who's on welfare. She has me and two other kids. And my um, half brother and sister. And she said, you're not bringing no dog in here. You're not bringing no dog in here. We're not having no dog. I can't take in no dog. But I think I'm going to get me a dog. So I started <laughs> saving my lunch money, which was a quarter at the time. So I saved $7.25 worth of quarters to go and buy myself a dog. And... I did. I bring the dog home and I make up this story that my teacher, my gym teacher, had to go away for a week and wanted me to keep the dog. So I'm just thinking I can get my mother used to the dog and then she'll be really fine with the dog. She's going to fall in love with the dog. So that did not happen. A week passes, another week passes, and my mother goes, when's your teacher coming back? How long are we going to have this dog? So the dog, I mean, I don't know how to train the dog. The dog's name was Simone. So it's half cocker and half poodle, my first dog. And my mother says, this dog is getting out of this house. This dog is getting out of here tonight. And I'm like, "Uh, what I got to do is save the dog. So I made up this cockamamie crazy story, Scott, about, I said, well, if I were you, I wouldn't get rid of the dog because when I came home from school, this dog, was chasing two men down the stairs. Now, we lived in this third-floor walk-up. She goes, what do you mean chasing two men down the stairs? I go, well, I didn't see the men, but Simone was chasing them <laughs> down the stairs. Oh, it's creative. Creative! <laughs> she, she said, well, what do you mean two men? Was the door open? I go, yeah, the door open. And I'm making up the story as I'm going along. I'm making up the right. story as I'm going along. And she goes, "What?" Well, Where the drawer is open? Yeah, the drawer is open. So in this moment, Scott, my 13-year-old self, I go to my mother's thing. I think, oh, I now look like there was a robbery. So I go in and I take a handful of stuff out of the drawer and I throw it out of the window. (laughs) I'm not kidding. And my mother says... Oh, my goodness, my ring is missing. This is her ring from her boyfriend, Willie. Willie, it's the only thing I want to say. Well, you got some pearls in there, too. There's some other stuff. So anyway, bottom line is I've thrown it out the window. My mother, I said, well, it's only because of Simone they didn't get more. (laughs)
1: So did she keep the dog? So, no,
0: she didn't believe me. She didn't believe me. She said, you're you're getting out. So she put me out. Me and Sabone slept in the hallway that night. Oh because because now she's like, I believe you're lying. I believe you're lying. So I know I'm lying, but I can't now. So I can't back down. Right. I can't back down. So I make up this crazy, crazy story that I've taken the ring. Yes, I did take the ring. <laughs>
1: But you'll only give it back if she keeps it on? No, no no. no,
0: no. No, no, no. I did take the ring, right. but I took it to the jewelry store to be engraved for Mother's Day. Uh, uh, ah. That's smart. Okay. So then my mother said, but so I'm, my plan is I'm going to go out. I'm going to get the ring. Then I'm going to take it to the jewelry store. <laughs> okay. If I can just wait right. till the morning. So she says, we're going right now. We're going right now oh. to get it. I go to the jewelry store. I'm standing there with my mother and I know... You're busted. I know I'm busted. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible, terrible, terrible. Oh, man. So my mother was so mad at me over that. She said, that's it. I've had it with you and your stories and you're lying and you can't be trusted. She first said, you're on drugs. You must have sold the money for drugs. You know, I didn't. No. Because it's right under the window. Right. And the bottom line (laughs) is she took me to the detention home. She's going to put me in the detention home. And the detention home was full. And because the detention home was right. full.
1: Enter daddy. Enter daddy. <laughs>
0: well, you. so what I think
1: a lot of people may wonder who are either learning this stuff for the first time or reminded of it from, from your show is how does somebody who goes through what a lot of this sounds like was was hell in some of these years. Yeah. How do you end up with your father becoming, it sounds like, a winning oratory contest stuff in the church and... Always, it seems like, having this kind of unshakable
0: faith in God. Well, because I think even kids who appear to be delinquent are only delinquent because they haven't had the kind of resources, the kind of opportunities, the kind of access. They haven't had anybody to love them. And everybody turns around with love. Everybody does. You, you can you can fix almost anything with that now it takes a lot of patience because I've tried to work with kids who you know were troubled kids it's not my forte it's not my strength because I don't have the patience for it <laughs> because I am more like my father this is the way it's, it's going be. to be <laughs> now you can either do that or not but this so I walked into my father's house yeah. and he literally had a we sat down. These are the rules of this house. Right. Oh, the house has rules. Right. And this is the way it's going to be. Either you abide by these rules or you're out.
1: Well, one of the things I gather he
0: made very clear was that acting was not going to be in your future. He said, there were, no daughter of mine <laughs> going to be an actress. Because all, you all you're doing is sleeping, laying on casting couches. Right. <laughs> you spend your life on a casting couch.
1: And so that uh, was not going to happen. That
0: was not going to happen. And so... I majored in speech and drama in college, but was going to teach it because I thought, well, there's no way I can, you know, live at home and even try to be in a play. It's like my father's like,
1: no. But isn't it true that as early as sounds like 17, you're you were now, I guess, under his roof, but sort of blossoming, I guess, in some ways. And including, I guess you were at a beauty contest and they asked you, what do
0: you imagine you're going to do with your life? What's your dream? Okay, so I end up uh, pregnant. I am pregnant when I walk into my father's house. My father says, I'm hiding the pregnancy, just like my mother hid me, by the way. And my father says, you know, I'd rather see a daughter of mine dead floating down the Cumberland River rather than bringing shame on this family, such a disgrace, these young girls today, blah, blah, blah. So I think, okay, got to kill myself. And before I can kill myself, my legs start to swell, I go to the hospital, I miscarry the child, and the child dies. My father says to me, you get another chance, and if I were you, I would take it. I ingested those words. I those words became my spiritual mantra. This is your this is your second chance. Mm-hmm. I went back to school and I became an orator, speaker, student council, all, all of that, which never would have happened had I
1: right.
0: you know come to term and 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 had a child because then I would have had to be taken out of school because those were the days where you couldn't go to school. Mm-hmm. You'd have to go find a girl's home and go to school. So I was in many ways saved by that, yeah. and I made a decision that I was going to turn it around, that that life that I'd been leading, that this— troubled, spiraled life that I had been leading that I was going to course correct on that and be
1: driven towards certain things. So I mean one of them so you it sounds like as early as seventeen you kind of knew that television journalist was something you wanted to pursue. then
0: no, I didn't know. I just had seen Barbara Walters. That's a very true story. you know I don't make up stuff no, I totally so so it. it's a true story. I was in this yeah. contest. It was misfire prevention, yeah. and somebody asked the one the one of the questions was what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? This is in Nashville. And my answer, all the other answers had been taken. I didn't know I was going to be a teacher. But two other girls had said they want to be a teacher. (laughs) And the other girl said you want to be a nurse. So there's nothing left. (laughs) You know, in those days, you weren't thinking, oh, I'd be a computer scientist or even I'd be a doctor. You know, the possibilities for women were so limited. And I'm standing there after the second girl says, teacher, thinking, what can I say? What can I say? What can I say? And what pops in my brain is seeing Barbara Walters. Where? What, what can I do that a woman can do? What right. can I do that a woman can do? That's what I'm thinking. So she was the model. And so I'd seen Barbara Walters on the Today Show. That's how long ago it was <laughs> that morning. And I I made up the story about I would like to be a journalist because I think that being a journalist, you can help people to see the truth and have that show up in their own lives. I made up some cockamamie no, well, yeah. and,
1: and then you, but, but just to show that you stuck with it. I mean, at Tennessee State, as you mentioned, you majored in speech and drama, graduated in 76, and then first job in TV, I guess, right after. I was reading $22,000 a year, reading the news, basically. But th-
0: this is as life would have it, you know. Yeah. And this is why I've become such a big believer in your thoughts and the power of your thinking yeah. creating your own reality. Because immediately after that contest, I was sponsored by a local radio station, WVOL. I go back to the station to pick up my prize, which is a long watch and a digital clock radio. Wow. The kind that flip. Yeah. And I'm waiting in the lobby, and one of the guys recognized me because I'd been there the year before for some of my oratory stuff. and. He said, aren't you the kid that went to the White House? yes. He, he said, you want to come in? You want to hear your voice on tape? You got a few minutes? Right. And he let me read some copy pulled from an AP wire, just as a fun thing, mm-hmm. to pass the time while I was waiting for my long-gene watch, and <laughs> listened to me read copy. And I just pretended to be Barbara Walters reading. <laughs> then he called in one another person, come hear this kid read. Calls in another person, come hear This kid read, and before you know it, I have a room full of guys standing there Listen to this kid read. Good, yeah. And I got hired while you were still in college. While, no, I was not even in not college. Not even in college yet. Yeah, I was. I was only like sixteen years old. So you would be this. Was, this was you said a radio station. I started in radio. Yeah. While I was in college, I get called by the local news director at what was then WLAC TV. Okay. Now it's WTVF Channel yep, Five, the yep. CBS local. General manager at the CBS affiliate called me out of class, (laughs) knows my name because I'm on radio, finds what class I'm in. I get a call out of class. And I go back to my professor and I say, he said, why why are you getting called out of class? I said, oh, that was Chris Clark from Channel 5. He was just calling. He keeps calling me and wants me to come interview for this job. (laughs) But I don't think I can because my dad's not going to let me. Right. Now, were you still living at home? I was still living at home. So that's how And Mr. It. Cox said, that is why you go to school, fool, so that's the CBS right. can call you. <laughs> I'll speak to your father. Right. So I, I had a news anchor job, Scott. From? Youngest. Yeah. Youngest. Youngest. I was 19 and sophomore in college and doing the news at 10 o'clock. My father had a curfew. You have to be home by 11. Oh, my God. Yeah.
1: Okay, so now was it very soon after graduating that you get a call from from Baltimore? And I, I want to just add on to this because
0: oh, he's going to the whole life. Well, no, but we're going to
1: we're going to synopsize <laughs> okay. little bits of it. And the reason though is that the, I, I think what was it like eight years in Baltimore, something like that. And the thing that really stands out to me there is that you came in with a lot of hype. It sounds like there was yeah, a lot yeah. of there was initially some disappointment. It, uh, how could anybody have lived up to that? And then the realization happened, I guess, that you're not meant to be reading news. You're meant to be talking about what's news happening. and people and what's happening, right? Well, okay.
0: So I, I, I think, you know, I, I think everybody's life tells its own tale of lessons, you know? So the great lesson for me, if, you pay, if you're paying attention to your life, you can get such important and valuable lessons that you don't have to make the same mistakes. So- when I moved to Baltimore, there was all this hype about what is an Oprah? <laughs> dun, 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 dun. What is an Oprah? And I was on the back of buses and I was at, you know, you'd look at yourself, you're on the cabs, you're yeah. everywhere, there are billboards, everything. What is an Oprah? So then when I showed up and I was just a person, people were like, what? That's an Oprah? So I had problems with my co anchor of the news. It was Nightly News at that time. Nightly point. News, very similar. It was the first time they were going to Hour, very similar to what. Barbara Walters later went through with Harry Reisner. Right. I went through it early on with Jerry Turner. Right. I'm this 22-year-old, you know, green behind the ear. Not green. I have a couple corn cobs growing <laughs> by, behind my ears. And Jerry Turner is the established white-haired news anchor for Baltimore. Right. He certainly didn't want a co-host, and he didn't want me. Right. So that didn't work out so well for me. And as they're trying to figure out what to do with me, they put me on this talk show. Now, what I learned after doing well in Baltimore with Richard Chair on this show, people are talking. What I learned when I moved to Chicago is no hype. Don't tell anybody you're coming. Just show up. Then blow them away. And then blow them right, away. Right, right, right. Or, or show up and do your best, right, right, really. Right, right, So when they were like, what do you want to do? What should be our campaign? I want no campaign. I want no announcement. I don't want anybody to say one word. And I want people to find out through word of mouth. And they're like, what? That's not the way we do? Please. <laughs> I have already been right. through the hype thing. Right. And that's exactly what happened. I happened to start in Chicago January 1st, 1984. Mm-hmm. It was a New Year's Day morning. It's a tiny little show. I mean nothing worked. It's me and my Jerry Curl and some <laughs> football players. And I think I called the fighting Illini Illini's. But, (laughs) you know, I'm mispronouncing things. The hot plate doesn't work. We're supposed to be making chili. Everything was wrong. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. But I just kept being myself. Oh, that's not working. Oh, well, Which is harder to do when you're reading a teleprompter. Which is much harder to do than reading a teleprompter.
1: Now, that even rebirth at that same station, though, was maybe a little jeopardized, wasn't it? When you get this... Really, the, maybe the craziest story of your whole life, where you get this call about, which ends up being about *The Color Purple*, which you had had your own mm. infatuation with, but you're, you don't have vacation time.
0: No, this is actually the favorite story yeah, of my know, life. That's amazing. So, this is another thing about using your 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 own mind to create reality for yourself. I had read *The Color Purple*. I. Love that book so much. I went and got it. I read it one one in less than an afternoon. I went back to the bookstore the same day. I got more of the books. I passed them out to everybody. I was obsessed with the story. Gave it around to everybody and had made a decision after I heard, oh, Steven Spielberg's doing a movie about this. I would go in the beauty shops and I'd be sitting there getting my hair done, and I'd say to people, you know, Steven Spielberg is doing a movie about this. They say, really? I say, yeah, I'm going to find a way to be in that movie. Having never really acted. Never, never acted. <laughs> I don't know Steven Spielberg.
1: <laughs> and I you're mean, in, Chicago, and in, yeah, in Chicago. I'm in Chicago. That's where you moved over now to Chicago. I'm in Chicago telling right. people
0: I'm going to be in the right. And lo and behold, if by the end of the year, I, I will tell you, I started talking about it in January and by the next December I got the I got a call I got a call in the office saying would you be interested in auditioning for a film we're doing called Moonsong? Moonsong. <laughs> and I was and I said to right. the guy on the other end of the phone are you sure it's not the color purple <laughs> because I have not been praying for a movie called right. Moonsong. right and as it turns out, it was, of course, The Color Purple, and I auditioned, and, and then... Got,
1: well, and then let's just play it out. Best Supporting Actress Oscar nomination in early 86, and that September is when the show, Oprah Winfrey Show becomes yeah. syndicated. What a year.
0: That was a big year. That was a big
1: year. And, and, and That was a big year. beginning of 25 years of Oprah Winfrey Show.
0: Well, and also, that was at a time when, you know, I, I didn't even know what an Oscar nomination meant. I didn't know. I remember... People saying, "Oh, you should watch," you know, when the uh, announcements are made early in the morning, and we were watching in our office or something. But it's like, wh- what?
1: You didn't know what you were getting into. No, that? I didn't.
0: Yeah. I didn't. I didn't know what yeah. it meant. I didn't know what it meant. Mm-mm. So,
1: with with regard to the Oprah Winfrey Show, which is how I think even multitudes more uh, obviously got to. Oh, this is know now you're getting I, to my favorite. Where, if you would set aside any humility for a moment any humility why as a tv expert
0: yeah did that show work setting aside all humility yes please it worked because of me yeah and it worked because i had a team that was attuned to me and it worked because we had a higher vision it worked for 25 years because you can work for five years or 10 years or something like other people have but you can't survive at 25 years at the top unless you have a strategy. And the strategy became, for me, an intentionally purposeful, meaningful-based show that is created specifically to serve the viewer. So around 1989, I read this book called A Seat of the Soul by Gary Zukav. And in it, he talked about the power of intention, how intention is a law that is operating in the universe all the time, just like the law of gravity and just like the law of cause and effect, meaning everything that you put out into the world is coming back, just like everything you throw up is coming down, everything that goes out is coming back. And before it goes out, there is an intention behind the thought. So the intention is the motivational energy force that fuels the thought and everything that comes out of the thought, the action, and then the outcome. So it's a thread that carries through with everything that you do. The energy of your intention affects everything that you do and determines the outcome. So when I got that, (laughs) I really got that, I brought all my producers in and I said, we are not going to do a show that we do not think about what is our intention for doing it? So when you make your list and they would make, I get 50 ideas a week. Right. So I go to the ideas meeting and I'd say, by every suggestion or idea, I want the intention for doing it. You don't have an intention, don't bring it to me. And I enforced that idea, which became rule, which became law. The intentions,
1: though, did they have, the ones that made it on that show and the overall intention of the show, was there a- a common theme, because it seems like the the Oprah brand, as mm-hmm. it's often described, was cemented during those early yeah. years.
0: Well, the intention. So we all had a mission, you yeah. know. Our mission is to uplift, enlighten, encourage, and entertain was the overall mission. So when somebody would bring me an idea, I would say, where does this show fit in with the mission? And what is the intention specifically are you trying to uplift? Are you trying to inform? Are you trying to entertain? You know, I remember one time somebody brought this idea. It was when Brad Pitt had done yeah. Benjamin Button. And I was saying, okay, what is the intention? They were going, Oprah, it's Brad Pitt. <laughs> the intention is for you to sit with Brad Pitt right. and have a conversation about right. whatever he wants to talk right. about. That's really our only intention. I go, okay, I can get that. So whether it was Brad Pitt or Tom Cruise or... Or we're doing a show about victims of violence, or really? molesters, or women who recovered from cancer, or what? Ultimately, what I- what do you want to happen at the end of it? And I would say to them, the reason why the show was so successful—I mean, like beyond yeah. in its connection to the audience—is because we talked about that every day. There were only two shows, the last two, the one that was at United Center. And the very final show, the only shows I didn't do notes on or have a post-show, a pre-show, a during the show, every single day for every single show.
1: And there were, I believe, 4,400 episodes, 37,000 interviews. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's
0: over 37,000.
1: So as you look back at that, do, do any particularly stand out in your mind? And also, did you come up with a coping mechanism so that, because I think part of the reason people fell in love with you as they saw that you actually felt the, oh, the I, pain
0: of these people. But ha- when you're feeling that much pain... That's a good question. I felt so much that, I mean, I used to feel so much. Gail called me one day go, you're crying too much. You're crying too much. Every day I'm looking up and you crying, crying, crying. I'm sick of you crying. I go, Gail, I, I'm, I'm not I'm not trying to cry. She goes, I know you're not trying to cry, but you need to stop crying. You need to stop crying. You cry too much. So, you know, she was actually and has been my greatest best critic because she watched every day and she watched as herself and watched as a viewer and yeah How'd you guys first cross paths? In Baltimore, In actually, ba- yeah. And Maria Shriver, I think. And Maria Shriver. Same. Yeah. We were all at the same station. Okay. So then every time I went to cry i can go, oh God, am I crying too much? <laughs> oh God, if <have> I already <laughs> cried once, okay, I stopped myself from crying. I, I I said to myself one day, I went into the control room after I was talking to a guest and I said the producer, it was Diane Hudson, executive producer, I said Gee, you know, I am feeling everything. I could feel what that woman was feeling. I was sitting there. I could feel her anxiety. I could feel that she was anxious. She thought that we were going to surprise her. She thought we were going to pull something over on her. And during the commercial break, I leaned in. I said, You don't have to worry. There's, you know, we're not, your husband's not going to show up here. Mm -hmm. So I said, I'm just feeling everything everybody's feeling. And Diane said, Girl, you need to do something about that Mm -hmm. because you're going to make yourself sick. So there was a time where I could, like, be there sitting with somebody feel their stuff so much i could make myself ill yeah. it's like playing certain parts i mean you look at these people on broadway that yeah that's right yeah. that's right you have to you have to cover yourself yeah. you have to shield yourself so i started doing that a little bit there was an elevator right outside my makeup room and i started taking the elevator down and using that moment alone in the elevator just to kind of have a prayerful meditation moment so that i could both protect myself allow myself my prayer was god use me and protect me mm. use me and protect me because you're 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 pulling in a lot a lot a lot of energy and i would find sometimes at night with really, really terrible stories like kids who'd been, you know, horribly molested, treated, violated, women kept under a bed, you know, lots of domestic violence and stuff. I would have to like go home and sit in a tub and just cover myself in water and try to release it so that you don't have, so that you're not carrying that energy around with you. Well, let's just, before we move on from, from that big chapter in your life, I just want to note,
1: While the show was running, these are some other things that you were introducing, either as part of the show or in addition to it. 96, The Book Club. Oh, yes. 97, Oprah's Angel Network.
0: Yes.
1: 2000, O Magazine and Oxygen Network. Oh, yes. (laughs) And then 07, Your School for Girls in South Africa, which I just want to read a quote that I thought was kind of appropriate here. In the 1939 movie adaptation of James Hilton's novel, Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Yeah. The title character dies after uttering the following words, quote, I thought I heard you saying it was a pity, pity I never had any children, but you're wrong. I have thousands of them and all boys. Now, this could just as easily have applied to you if we just swap in the word girls. Thousands of
0: them. Yeah. Thousands of them. How did that start? It started because I was sitting in Nelson Mandela's living room on a Sunday afternoon and I'd been there already seven days and I could actually write a book called 10 Days and 29 Meals because I spent 10 days at his house and had 29 meals with him, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, up until the last day. And it was a Sunday. I'd been there a week. We'd gotten to the point where in our relationship where we could just sit in silence and read the paper without a lot of conversation. So he was handing parts of the paper off to me as he read. When he'd finish a section, Mm -hmm. he'd pass it on to me. There was a story in there about a poor girl who was— trying to get school fees to go to school. And we started a conversation about how tragic it is the kids can't go to school. And I said, yes, one day I want to build a school for girls, specifically for that reason. And he said, oh, you want to build a school? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I do, I and I would do that here in South Africa as, as a gift to you. And he said, oh, and he gets up. He calls the (laughs) minister of education off of his boat in Cape Town. And before you know it, I'm I'm sitting in a meeting with the minister of education. So I I had been thinking about, because for me, we don't have time, even in an hour, Mm -hmm. to talk about the inner makings of how I operate. From the time I started in Chicago and was making $225,000 a year when I first started Mm there— That was more money than I'd ever imagined making. And at $225,000, the first question to me was, how do I figure out a way to give some of this Mm -hmm. back? And so I had started in Chicago my own little group of big sisters going into the projects, helping young girls in the projects, and taking them out on the weekends, and taking them to the movies, and taking them to the library, Mm -hmm. because that's what somebody did for me. I heard you had some sleepovers. And sleepovers and all of that. And... That worked for a while, but what I started to realize is is that unless I could find a way to adopt those kids and put them in my own house or have them every week, that I couldn't make really significant change. Mm-hmm. That the outings were nice, but I wasn't making long-term impact. So what I learned from that, which at the time felt like a failure, oh, gee, we're failing these kids, I can't do what I really wanted to do, What I learned from that is if you really want to change anybody, you have to change their mind. You have to change the way they think. You don't change people by giving them things, and you don't change people by even offering them opportunities if they don't know what the opportunity means, Mm -hmm. if they can't step into the opportunity and receive it. So the idea of a girl's school, private, away from home, was a way for me to indoctrinate, to empower, to propagandize in a, in a positive way the thinking of these young girls who have grown up in an environment where they believe they're nothing, they've seen nothing, they have no access to anybody or anything that can make them feel like yeah. they're something. So how do I get them away from that and show them a whole other way of being in the world, how right. do I get to show them possibilities? So the only way I could think to do that was, oh, you got to build a school. Yeah. You got it has to be a beautiful space because people are inspired by beauty. It needs to have art. It needs to have a beautiful library. It needs to have a place to perform. It needs to have all the things you would want if you were doing a school. So that's why yeah, I, I did it that I way.
1: About paying it forward, and you said when it opened, you called it the proudest day of my life. Close yeah. Quote. With our, our last quarter of our time, I want to obviously focus on the present stuff that's, that's occupying but Can I just say something place. about the proudest day of yeah. my life? Yeah, please.
0: I remember saying that exact thing to Maya Angelou, my mentor teacher. I said, Maya, oh, my gosh, this is going to be, this is the greatest thing. This is my legacy. This is you. Because she couldn't be there at the opening. Right. I said, oh, it's going to be, it's going to, it's my greatest legacy. And Maya said to me, you have no idea what your legacy will be. Yeah. Because your legacy, she says, and this is, this changed me, Scott, and this is for anybody who's listening. Yeah. I'm talking to you, you podcasters. <laughs> you have no idea what your legacy will be because your legacy is every life you touch. Your legacy is everybody who listens to this podcast and hears something, feels something, feels moved to think a different way, changes the way they see themselves, see the world, Your legacy is every life you touch. So Maya said to me, how many thousands of shows have you done? How many thousands and thousands of guests have you had? It could have been something your guests said. It could have been something you said. It could have been something somebody stood up in the audience and said. And somebody who is watching in Burma, who is watching (laughs) in Birmingham, Alabama, who's in a different part of the world, sees that and says, you know what? I am not going to let myself be abused anymore, or I'm going to go back to school, or I'm going to eat better, or I'm going to watch how much salt I'm taking in, or how much sugar. She goes, your legacy is everybody who's seen, heard, experienced, and decided because of this, I'm going to be different. Well, I mean, you, I, Isn't that powerful? Many,
1: it is, and I don't think too many people have, have in that way touched more lives, so it's an incredible thing. But, but. the
0: most important thing about that for me is that it applies to all of us who every day yeah. touches someone's life.
1: That every and it shows that every life has value. Yeah,
0: every person you pass on the street, every person you you know. I'm thinking about the guy. Who could could I've given that guy some money on the corner? I couldn't get the window down in time. Would I hold up traffic. You know. I'm thinking about every. I'm thinking sure. about it in big ways and little ways. Yeah.
1: So after the Oprah Winfrey Show came to an end in 2011, you had to figure out what what are you going to do next? And a, but part of that was own Oprah Winfrey Network, which I had read somewhere that Stedman suggested to you like 25 years ago that you have your own network. Is that correct?
0: Well, it was October 14th, 1992.
1: So was that? Yeah.
0: Yeah, that is. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It didn't happen until 2010. So it started before the Oprah Winfrey show was over. But you've spoken about this, that it, it maybe started a little rocky, but obviously has rebounded in a major way. But there was a point there where you said, quote, people were counting me out, close quote, and that the press and its coverage, quote, tried to cut me off at the knees, close quote. With the benefit of hindsight now, what happened at the beginning and how did you turn it around so much?
0: Well, there was a lot of short and forward going on in the beginning, short and forward, <laughs> which means that people are happy to see you fail. And I can see that, I understand it. It's one of the reasons why I pulled myself out of the Daytime Emmy Awards early on because yes. I could see that people were like, oh, not her again. <laughs> Not her again, right. give somebody else a chance. Right. And so about 10 years in or eight years in or something, I said, okay, that's it, appreciate it. I felt that I, in the beginning, made a lot of, lot of mistakes. I made the wrong choices. And I have, to this day, gone over and over in my mind, like should I have waited until I, I completely ended the Oprah Winfrey show? Yes, that would be the yes, answer. You needed to be there. Yeah, because yeah. I needed to be there. And this whole idea that you can start something from scratch that carries your name and bears your brand. Yeah. Not my favorite word, but that buries your, because my brand is my heart. Yeah. It's the essence of me. And not be there for daily input and expect other people to get what that is. is It's just a false notion. So now I know that. So the big thing, big mistake for me was in the beginning, expecting that it would just happen without me being there. And the turnaround came when I had my own come to Jesus meeting with myself. Self, I says, (laughs) I need to talk to you. And the turnaround was stop looking at this as the as a problem that you've created, and look at it for the opportunity that it is, because how many people in their lifetime get an opportunity to have a platform, call it whatever you will, a network that has their name on it, you know? So it's just like you in this podcast, you can see it as, oh, how many how many listeners, how many? Or you can say, every day I can build. Every day I have the opportunity to reach more people oh, what an incredible thing. So I literally shifted the narrative for myself with a little help and a push Mm -hmm. from Mm -hmm. David Zazzle and built a team, and we started to grow. I can't say, oh, gee, we took off. That was
1: one thing. Yeah, yeah.
0: but I think it's a series of asking the right questions and then making the next right move. And part of that,
1: one of the moves that's clearly worked is Queen Sugar, which we will bring to. But just before we even specifically talk about that. The only time you acted during the Oprah Winfrey show, I believe, was Beloved in ninety eight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then it was fifteen more years and before The Butler. Why the long gap and was it was any part of that a concern of yours that as you became much more famous for being you, that audiences might have a harder time seeing you as someone
0: else? Oh, for sure. I called during the Oprah show, I can't remember what year it was, and so I called the director of Doubt because Tandy Newton, for some reason, had that script and had shown me the script. And she said, you should play this role. You should play this role. And I called the director and said, you know, could I please get a read? And the director said, no, he would not even give me a read because he didn't want people to be startled in that short period of time that they had to know the character, startled by the Oprah factor and then never recover from it. And he didn't want because she's only on screen a couple of times. Every time you show up, people say, Oh, there's Oprah. This is the part Viola eventually the, the, played. The part that yeah. Viola was nominated for, of course. Right. And I understood that. The moment he said it, I thought, Oh, gee, that, that has been my fear. And now you just confirmed it for me. Ooh. So I recognize that. And, you know, it's not something to lament. Oh, what a big problem to have in the world that you have such a huge persona that it's hard for people to see you any other way. Now, what I did know is that because I was able to do that for the color purple. Yes. And I do feel that period pieces give me a greater opportunity to slip into a character than something more contemporary. Cause it's really hard, you know, like Gail's like, I want you to play something sexy and why don't you play a modern character? Why don't you be a lawyer? Well, a lawyer, I'm gonna look like myself, <laughs> and I'm gonna walk like myself, I'm gonna dress like myself. I mean, there's not a lot of difference between. But wasn't that a great appeal about Deborah Lacks? And, and that was life Henry exciting for Deborah Lacks, but also scary for Deborah Lacks because I gotta just tell you, Scott, I love this acting thing. I find that it opens me up and stimulates me in a way that absolutely nothing else does because you get to not just read about a character you actually get to explore the nature of another human being so that's really fascinating but i haven't had the training or the you know you just get better with stuff when you do it you know whether you're sweeping a floor yeah. or playing basketball or learning to play pool or scrabble or what whatever you do and you do more of it you get better at it So I've really, I mean, how many films have I done? Five, six, since The Color Purple, including The Color Purple? So every time I do it, there is a level of anxiety and fear that I have to wrestle with for myself.
1: Well, but I mean, so the responses have been great. In recent years, there was, as we said, The Butler. Then there was Selma, which is how you and Ava, I guess, Mm -hmm, first mm -hmm. cross paths and now continue with Queen Sugar, which you'd love to hear about as well. But then with Immortal Life, Henry Lacks, which... I think you initially resisted playing that one. Too. Yeah,
0: there were I, I absolutely Lynn Amato can tell you the name other names of actresses that I, I gave him one that I thought in particular should do it, and they said no no no, and then I said well what about this person and they said no no no, and Lynn said I'm coming to see you, and. <laughs> came up to my, I'm coming to see you, and sat on my back porch, back patio, and we talked about it. And he was like, why don't you want to do it? Why don't you want to do I said, I always thought I had somebody else in mind to do it. And quite frankly, I don't know if I can, you know, I don't know if I...
1: What scared you the most? Because let's just know if for people who haven't yet had a chance to see it. This is the da- uh, sort of a tortured daughter of someone who was, you know, she's learning about her mother and, and in a lot of ways is very different from you, certainly yeah. physically from the walk to the hair to everything, but also internally, this this mania that she's battling. You, you're known as a very unflappable, calm, yeah. deliberately zen. I am person. so
0: I am so the opposite. That during a couple of scenes, I honestly thought, "Oh, this I'm gonna have a I'm gonna I'm gonna have a stroke right here, <laughs> right now. I'm gonna have a stroke." And I actually said to George, "I said, George." I don't have a headache, I have a double pounding, something's going on in my brain, so I, I have to stop, I have to stop for a minute. And he was like, okay, okay, what do we need to do, what do we need to do, I, 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 I don't know, because I've gotten myself to a state where I'm, it, it's so foreign to me. By um, meditating, you've got yourself there, or what's the? Well, I just normally, I can honestly tell you, there have been, Five times now in my life where I've been angry enough to raise my voice. (laughs) I can tell you all five, and three of them were with the same person. Dare I ask? No, (laughs) No, I won't. I won't say the person's name. But he's the only person who has the distinction of being fired three times by me. Okay. Well, that shows you
1: give second chances. Yeah, I give second chances, and then I give a third chance,
0: and then that's it. Right. But it's not a natural state for me, and so I have to really work at finding pockets of what I could possibly be angry about and angry enough. And she wasn't just angry. There is a permanent seething. Layered rage going on, and so to to kind of live in that state, I'm sure my blood pressure was up the whole time I was doing it, and I was really happy to to release her because who wants to live in that space? I just this is what I thought. I, I thought, wow, people who are this angry it sucks. <laughs> not just not just sucks. They they they. I can see how this makes you ill. Yeah, I can see how being mad all the time actually would make you sick.
1: It is kind of amazing though that before she before this was even a book, she was telling Rebecca Sklut that she imagined that, Oprah. That playing she imagined her. <laughs> me playing
0: her. So uh, that's but, part of the reason I did it. I did it as a as an homage, as a tribute to her yep. and to her family. And I thought, wow She's And many times I'd be in a scene and go, okay, Deborah, you really? wanted me to do this. <laughs> Help me out right now. Help me out right now. also the
1: fact that you, who are this great student of African-American history, did not know her story, what does that say about everybody else?
0: Yes, and the fact that I hadn't, you know, I'm not saying I'm supposed to know every darn story's ever happened, but, you know, I'm pretty, you know, I, I know a lot about yeah. African-American history yeah. and stories. And so the, when I read this and realized not only do I not know the story, I lived in Baltimore for 8 years. Yeah. I was a student of the culture, I was a reporter, I've been on these streets where she lived. Right. I've been to Hopkins, I've been covered all this as a reporter over an 8 year period and I never once heard her name. That's crazy. Not even her name. Yes. With our last minute. May we, we have do? a last minute. <laughs> we have one
1: minute here. What? Uh, <laughs> I, what? Hope, I know, I know you don't want to leave, right? It's good to Really, <laughs> Scott? This is such
0: great therapy. <laughs> no, Come on. Thank
1: you. I've, I'm loving it. But this is just what we call a little bit of rapid fire. Just first thing that comes to your mind, if we may. Okay. What shows other than those on Own do you watch on a regular basis?
0: Hmm. I'm watching Elizabeth Moss in Handmaid's Tale. Good God Almighty, yes. Jesus, help us, Lord. <laughs> I watched Big Little Lies, which I thought was intriguing, fascinating, crazy, and even kind of fun in a way. I just love watching Reese. And I love, love, love seeing Nicole. I remember when Nicole was in the hours, I, after seeing it in a screening room, I got her phone number, I called her up and I said, girl, get your Oscar <laughs> dress ready. So yeah, right now yeah, it would be Hand, hand Handmaids, ones. okay?
1: Which other person in show business today most reminds you of yourself?
0: John Travolta, because of his love of life. Okay. He just loves life.
1: When is the last time you took a cab, a public bus, or a flight on a commercial airline?
0: The last time I was on a commercial airline was April 1991.
1: Wow. Okay. Well, that's impressive you got the date. Yes. Right? yes. Last time you met someone who didn't already know who you were.
0: Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's see. I don't know. Uh, that's, that there's our answer. <laughs> I can't remember when that w- was. Okay. Whatever. Okay.
1: You've known Donald Trump for a long time. He came on your show in 98 and talked about running for president. In 2009, he told Larry King that he loves you and you would be his dream Running mate, I don't get the sense that you're thrilled with how he's doing today. What happened to him? And if it looks like you are the only person who has a chance of preventing him getting a second term, would you, in that case, run? And could you win?
0: I will never run for public office.
1: Okay, that's a pretty definitive. That's a pretty definitive thing. Okay, I will never if run. If you for... did, though, could you beat him?
0: And I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But I will. You will never have to. I will never have to know the answer to that because. I will never be <laughs> in public office.
1: What keeps you up at night?
0: Absolutely zero. That's Because I'm in I'm good. in bed by you would be shocked. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, okay, son, you can go down now.
1: <laughs> okay. Bill Mars in hot water for using the N word on his show. Should black people and white people be held to a different standard as far as the I think
0: word? the word should be eliminated from the uh, the lexicon. I think it should be eliminated for everybody. Yep. Gail and I have been in this conversation and I'm in this conversation with my friends. I have been on record being anti the word, period. Nobody should be allowed to say it.
1: Who's the interview that got away?
0: Mm, Jackie Onassis.
1: What have you not done yet that's still on your bucket list? I heard Broadway might be one of those things.
0: No? No, I'm not feeling Broadway anymore. I went to see Bette Midler and I realized I cannot do that. Eight shows a week. I know. That's a lot. Uh, That's a lot. What's on my bucket list? I'm going to hike the Milford or Rotburn Trail in New Zealand. I'm going a long, like, multi-day hike. That's great. Okay. And finally,
1: if things had not worked out the way they have along the way, whether it was sitting in that radio station and you get to read the news, or it was getting the color purple, or it was, you know, owning your own show because you, you didn't want to have that vacation day problem again where they won't give you vacation days. We didn't even get too much into that. But what would you be doing today Fourth grade teacher. Life, fourth grade teacher.
0: Fourth grade teacher. And, would you, and I you would just be. As happy? N- well, well no, 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 I won't just <laughs> just I would not have the same number of shoes. Right. That's for sure. <laughs> but I will tell you this fourth grade teacher. And I think that there's absolutely no greater profession. And I think that all those years with the Oprah Winfrey show, I felt like I got to be the teacher I always wanted to be.
1: You're a great one. And I thank you so much. I really oh, appreciate Scott, it. this was good. This was great. <laughs>
2: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. BGW proof. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.